Myth-making is a central dimension of being human, and fiction writers are the midwives of that process for the rest of us. Tonight's guest is a Denver-based Latinx writer, director, and filmmaker who serves as community engagement director for Lighthouse Writers Workshop and is currently working on Nortinas, a collection of speculative, speculative fiction short stories centered on the north, in the north side, a Mexican and Mexican-American centered part of Denver, and the people, ghosts, and demons that live there. Let us welcome Manuel Aragon to Malhide Theology. Welcome, Manuel. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for joining us tonight. It's so good to be with you, and we are so honored to have you. Um, I've heard that one does not become a writer. One realizes that they already are. Please tell us how you realized that you are a writer. Yeah, I, I think I really like that question. And, and I like the way that that sounds right. That one doesn't, um, one just realizes they are a writer, that they, they don't become a writer. And I, I think one, one of the first things that comes to mind, I, I recall in grade school, putting together like a book, you know, you would write something um, and then you would, take it to a class and bind it and there was this whole act of like creating this thing that was like physical and uh in, in a lot of ways it felt like a real book and I remember doing that in class and then <clears throat> coming home with this physical product and uh growing up I spent a lot of time with my grandma who you know I was with her like every morning before school every afternoon after school and so I come home and the first person I get to show my creation to it's my grandmother and she reads it and it's something that you know as, as grandmothers are uh, known to do right she loves it she praises it and th this act that there's something about it that feels really um I think back then, and even now as a creator, there's this act of kindness and generosity from a somebody who reads your work and enjoys it. And um, that was one of those feelings that I had where I was like, oh, I can do this and do this well, you know, and it was at a young age, right? The next thing, and, it, you know, one of the uh, life's full of adversity, right? Yeah. And I really... In high school, you know, I I knew I was creative. I musician, painter, all all sorts of creative outlets, and I loved writing. And I remember one of my favorite teachers. Um, I told her I was applying to New York University. Would she write me a letter of recommendation? And it was one of those things where she's like, "I'll do this." I just don't think you'll get in. I'm just going to be oh very honest with you. And um, so she wrote her letter and then I wrote the heck out of the essay that I submitted with that. And I, I got into NYU. And that was one of those things that for me, I, like, uh, 
it was one of those moments where I knew I can do this and I can do this mm. um, naturally, right? It, it comes from this place inside that um, I want to do it. And, you know, mm. so since then, um, that storytelling has, it's come through in like film and like this phase of my life, it's short stories. And so I've been, um, doing a ton of writing, especially over pandemic, which is really weird to say, mm. to be able to have like this creative outlet. So. Amazing. Amazing. You, um, as you said, you write fiction. Say a bit, if you will, about the role that you think that good fiction can play in the shaping of moral imagination and the creation of better futures for individuals, communities, and nations. And I'm thinking about that, um, you know, well-known essay by C.S. Lewis that talks about the role of children's literature in the forming of moral imagination. And he always, he would say that, um, good children's literature is good adult literature. Mm -hmm. um, so if you would just say a little bit about good fiction. So I think uh, fiction has to exist in this place where not, not only is it challenging the times, but it's imagining radical new futures, right? Um, fiction has to be this place where we, as writers, as creatives, it, it's this place that is setting up like new, I almost think of it as like moral guideposts, right? That we are creating this world that we would love to see and we'd love to see it come to fruition. And it is a way of getting these ideas out there to people Um who actually want to change and see our world become a better place. Right. And I, I know that sounds like a really uh, lofty goal, but I, I think that for me, if, if you're writing, it, it's this grand challenge to the reader, to the audience of what, what are, what are you going to do and what am I going to do to make this a better and a more hopeful future? Amazing. Yeah. And and one of the most transformative things I've ever heard in church, actually, um, my boss, Richard, was preaching a sermon and he said that faith and imagination are synonymous. Those are those are synonymous words. And so, you know, for Christian people, um, when we talk about imagination, we're talking about faith. We're talking about the power to be able to imagine something different, something better for ourselves. Um, and, and by extension for our societies. Um, so Manuel, early last year, and this is almost unimaginable, if you will, um, that we were in public together and I got to hear you read your short story, The Last Snowstorm. And I, I'm, I would invite you to read an excerpt from that wonderful um, story for us tonight, and then I'll join you um well perfect just yeah. a bit thanks uh yeah just just as i start to share that it's a it's a really 
I, I was thinking about this. I, I think two weeks before the uh, we went into our our stay at home, we uh, <laughs> I had this reading which which you came to, and it was one of the like last in person things that I. Uh, was able to partake in and so it's really vivid because you you know you don't uh, plan the world shutting down but it's you know I was, able, I was able to come you came to that and then I came to Mile High Theology with Bobby mm-hmm. and like those are the last things I did um, and it's wow. crazy to think that we're like a year out so amazing yeah what a year it's been well Take us back to early 2020 and and let's hear some good storytelling. Okay. So this is the last snowstorm and I'm going to read about the first third of it. I think we can look back and say that we knew all along that something was happening, but we didn't quite have the words to explain it. Occasionally our brains got stuck, lost in translation, trying to think of a way to phrase it or say it. We lacked the vocabulary to describe it other than to say that we knew. Did you really know? Because I'm certain that I knew. In that way that you understand change just by the way the air is flowing. The way that the cool air moves into town just before sunset. The way that the stink of the Purina plant just off I-70 lets you know that snow's on the way. The way that the trees hang a bit longer than usual. The way that the light reflects through a glass window in your living room. Off the mirror... The hue that shoots forward is no longer blue, but slightly orange. The way that sound echoes and reverberates and resonates in your house when you've moved something around or out. A change had come. Things were different. Lizette said that she started to notice it when they knocked down the old Alvarado house. The red brick bungalow on 44th and Alcott. The one where Cristela used to live. Yeah, you know the one just south of that house that exploded on a late spring day. Tu sabes que they were making meth? I don't even know what that is, but I know the smell. It smells like the lavanderia that I used to work at. Abuela would always start the story the same way, right before she would fill in the details of the day. I had it memorized. The air was hazy that morning. The smog had begun to permeate, infiltrate, choke the city. The number of cars multiplying in our neighborhood and the air, once pure, fresh, mountain clean, was no longer so. Pollen gliding in the wind, an explosion of spring, the scent of lilacs bursting through the air, that morning when the meth lab erupted on 44th and Alcott. Lizeth had been making her way to school, a full backpack in tow, additionally weighed down by the family expectations, placed upon her when I didn't graduate. When she stopped to watch a single falcon flying through the neighborhood, a murder of crows hot on its tail. One by one, each crow began to attack the falcon, the falcon fighting valiantly, effortlessly, and then suddenly, the crows stopped, turned sharply, and flew away. That's when she heard it. A silence. Time frozen. Eye contact with the falcon staring down on her wing spread, and then the boom. A violence springing forth, untamed wild, the sound barrier ruptured. Even two blocks away from it, she could feel the explosion in her chest, her heart racing. She rushed home, uncertain, unknowing. Was Abuela okay? Within minutes, new station helicopters hovered above the scene, the smoke covering where brick and men had stood, a car alarm sounding in the distance, the streets, our hood, a war zone. 
The dust lingered for hours, loitering in the neighborhood, nefarious with its intentions. From work, I guess, though I don't truly remember. I had called home. Awalita answered the phone, assuring me that things were okay. Take my time, finish out my day, come home when I get a chance. Awalita would tell this story again and again and again and again and again. The details nearly identical each time, the same pauses in the story to hold for dramatic effect. I knew how the story would end, or rather where it would trail off. You know, they never found those men. She'd pause, look out the window. Yoli said they were experimenting with time travel, not meth dealers. And she would know, you know. Another pause. Her brother, Oscar, remember him? He was muy guapo. Well, he was selling too. And he knew all the other dealers in the neighborhood. She'd start up again. Her brother, Oscar, do you remember him? He was muy guapo. They say he was dealing. She told me too. Well, he knew all the other dealers, and he says they weren't selling. If there was one thing she could always remember, it was the chisme. We noticed it with the new box houses springing forth from the earth. Wealth and prosperity unleashed upon us. White flight cashing in their tickets and moving back into the city that they had abandoned. Awalita would stop and stare at the new boxy houses, confused, perplexed, and ask, Has this always been here? Awalita, they built that a few years back, remember? Lizeth would always tell her, and I, too shy to confront her, would let it pass. Of course I remember Mitha. I just don't remember it looking like this in my mind. It was smaller, cleaner, humble. And then we'd continue on our way. We'd notice it when we'd take her on an errand through the neighborhood. Her asking me to drive her to Shudos, her favorite grocery store, to cash her check. I'd politely remind her that Shudos had gone out of business over 30 years ago. And she'd sit, solemnly, looking out the passenger window at the remnants of her favorite places, the ghosts of the vacated panaderias, canercerias, mercados, empty for sale signs, for sale sign posts hanging from the houses, the bricks screaming out with memories, resigned to be knocked down. The only reminders of the Luceros, Gonzaleses, and Romeros that no longer lived here. She'd ask me to take her to her friend Josie's house on a near weekly basis. <laughs> what do you mean she doesn't live on 33rd anymore? She'd ask, indignant. Because who was I to stop her from seeing her best friend? Awalita, she passed away. What? Every single time that we had that interaction, I'd have to explain to her that... Josie's son, Abuelita, he'd killed her. I knew that she'd forget that and that she'd ask, Mijita, please drive me over there. We'd roll down Zuna, lined with completely new houses, the only brown faces to be seen on small crews building up the new and tearing down the old. We'd park in front of one of those hideous new builds, and I'd let Abuelita out, looking for 3333 Wyandotte. We'd usually walk past a new build or two, giving her a chance to talk with the men working on the site. She'd get back in the car and squeeze her red bolsa, worn down from years of wear and tear. She'd squeeze it a little more than usual, her telltale sign that she was pissed. I remember once, Awalita, back when her memory was so good, talking about the change coming to the neighborhood. Mijita, this is what injustice looks like. It's taking away a neighborhood from people and only allowing them back in to destroy their houses that they previously occupied. 
got the stores that their parents used to shop at. You're asking them to rewrite their memories. It's sad. We started to notice it when Abuelita would call out, asking me to run over to Angela's house to borrow their placata for tortillas. Sandra, she'd yell, confused when it didn't get me to look away from my, my phone or the television. Sandra, eventually she'd walk over and tap my shoulder impatiently. Abuelita, I'm not Sandra, it's me, Saida. She'd stare into my eyes, rub the sides of her head, strain to remember something that was no longer there. I'm sorry, Mita. I sometimes forget. Mama became concerned with her and me. Well, I just thought that was part of the aging process. Our next door neighbor, Jesus, had gone through something similar before his daughters moved him in with them. I figured it was just a matter of time before we'd have to do something similar, a task that my mom wasn't prepared for. I remember the summer heat as we drove down to Denver Health, the air conditioner not working in a car that I had bought from a neighbor who had since passed away to visit Awalita's doctor, a man my mother's age who'd grown up in the north side and moved away. We sat in the waiting room, the TV playing noticias y telenovelas. We sat with the doctor. He could have been our Theo with his receding hairline, outdated wire glasses, his aging gut, and heard a term we'd never heard before, dementia. My mom asked him to explain it to us again, all of us experiencing a loss in words. What does this mean for my mother? Mama asked. Well, from what you told me, it really seems like your family has already made the adjustments that your mother is going to need. Is there any way to make it better? The doctor removed his glasses. He slowly, slowly cleaned them. I'm afraid there's no way to stop this. He put his glasses back on. As summer turned to fall and winter, as the north side was eradicated, replaced by sunny side, the highlands, low high and slow high, we noticed the sharper decline in Nahuelita's health and memory. She'd frequently mix up our names, Lizeth, Isaida, replacing them with those of loved ones long past, people that not even my mother had known. That winter, we spent long days with her, trying to capture her stories, asking for encore performances, knowing that her memory, her essence, our histories, they would soon be gone. Abuelita, tell me about the snow. She had always remembered the last snowstorm. Did you know the Abuelito Juan loved the snow? These moments when she recognized her place in time, our names, our family, were becoming less frequent. I settled in for the story. He loved it so much. Every time it snowed, he'd be out there helping people, stranded, stuck. She stopped, her eyes welling up with tears. You know, they say a car hit him, but we don't know for sure. The cops, they found him, dead. They didn't let us know for weeks because he was a mulatto. Mom didn't really like to talk about it. And Theo Miguel, she refused to believe that we were treated as less than just because we were brown. One night that winter, Lizeth and I were watching TV, probably something like Wheel of Fortune or Price is Right or Jeopardy. Abuelita asleep in her reclining chair 
when Lizeth moved closer to me on the couch and raised the volume, just loud enough to drown out our conversation. I've been thinking about something. I have a theory. Every time a story from Lizeth started this way, I knew it was going to lead to trouble. That time that we set out fireworks in the neighbor's garage, that time that we had cut one another's hair, all trouble started this way. What this time? I asked, rolling my eyes a little. I'm not sure she could tell. I've been thinking about Abuelita's memory. My theory is that each time something's destroyed in the neighborhood, she loses a little bit of it. <laughs> Seriously? I couldn't help but laugh. That's absurd. No, 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 no. Hear me out. Hear me out. I've been keeping a journal when she first started to tell us these random stories, write dates, places, etc. This was how Lizeth always worked, collecting facts, quotes, notes from newspaper to try and support a theory. The first time I recall her stumbling or like, uh, well, I have a word that I came up with called memory looping. It was when they knocked down the place on 44th, right? Well, yeah, that's the first one I can remember, I mean, but that's that's a coincidence. I thought that too, but she became fixated on shootos in early spring, right? Well, they knocked down the grocery store that had taken over after shootos around that same time. That's two. Two coincidences don't make a full-fledged proven theory. Here, let me grab my notebook and a map that I made. She laid out her theory, plotting the hyper-focus in Abuelita's memory and the disconnection from modern day. She had taken notes on the specific days tied to the locations that they were part of. I've got another theory. Look, I think, I think if we can just rebuild the neighborhood. She paused, trying to gather her thoughts. She looked me straight in the eye, then stared down. I think maybe we can fix her memory. Lizeth had laid out the impracticalities of building a city from scratch. Duh, it couldn't happen. We didn't have the money to make it happen. But that didn't mean we weren't going to try. Thank you. Amazing. Thank you so much for, for sharing that story. And, and I think, you know, I wasn't a great English student. Um, in school, but hearing this a second time a year later, and I, I know that we shouldn't, I should never ask a um, kind of invasive question like this, but is Abuelita the North side? She is. Yeah. I, I think of, um, so as I think of the story that there were a lot of, I think for a lot of us who grew up in the North side and mm. who were trying to recapture a lot of the look, the feel, the time, the place. And I wrote, so I wrote this story as a film script, like 17 years ago. And wow. It, went nowhere, you know, had some interest, nothing happened to it. And with time, I was able to see, like you said, that Abuelita is the North side, that mm -hmm. she is this uh, 
spiritual embodiment, right? Of the North side. And I think of, for a lot of folks of my generation, um, we have family members and friends and houses, and, and we have all these things that are just those embodiments, right? We, we look at, um, you know, we, we have such a connection to storytelling and history. And so as we lose those people in our lives, we very much, um, the, the North side starts to fade away in some aspect. And so like, even, you know, that this act of storytelling, right, is is an attempt to preserve that. And I, I thought of the two granddaughters kind of in that same place, right, that they are scrambling to just connect with this thing, this place that was theirs and is no longer that. And I, I love, and, and for those, um, in our audience, if you have any questions or comments, please leave those in the YouTube and Facebook comment sections and we will um, get to them. Um, Manuel, one thing that I, I do love, back to our conversation about the, the granddaughters, one of them uses kind of this coarse phrase, um, fixing her memory. Um, if we can just fix her memory um, maybe she will be, um, you know, maybe these buildings will come back, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and I just, I love that sort of kind of visceral, um, desire to protect their grandmother. And then by extension, um, a neighborhood that has formed and shaped them, uh, which is such a beautiful thing well thank you yeah i i think that um so it's it's a really thinking about this story what one of the things that i am really drawn to is like the you know so fixing fixing her memory is this act of um you know in, in her mind it's this act of science right and very much um, like somebody who has like a science brain and trying to like theorize and come up with all of this stuff. And I think that for me, the other piece is that what, what she's actually doing or what the granddaughters are actually doing is the spiritual act, right? Mm. They're trying to do this sort of soulful restoration and in a way it is the in much the like as the story goes on the granddaughter it, it's the evolving story of in the way that they cared the way that she cared for them they cared for her mm. and it's like the way that they know how to restore in terms yeah. of like physically they know how to restore that and they are going to do whatever outside madness or lunacy that they can to try to um, fix her. Uh, but it is like, it's a spiritual and soulful uh, experience and journey rather than like a very cut and dry methodical scientific 
experiment. And, and, and I like, I, I think that's kind of one of the reasons that um, a little bit of writing in the speculative fiction vein is that there's this, um, there's a supernatural that you can, you know, whether you call that God or whether you call that, whether it's a spiritual essence or not, you can reference it and acknowledge that we, we do live in this world, that there are these things that happen, um, that there is no scientific explanation for, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, I, I think of that too, like throughout it, because it's very much like, I can fix this. Um, and so that, yeah, that was the phrase where like, okay, th this is like, <laughs> is somebody who, um, is trying to capture sort of that, uh, very, again, that I always call it like scientific brain fix just seemed like such a, the right term. No, it, it's perfect, and it it, camp, it encapsulates so much. And um, as we close our conversation, um, it, it encapsulates so much of um, in even in narratives and scripture. There is um, kind of this tension between place, memory, and exile. Um, Psalm 137, um, I believe it, it says something to the, and it's basically these characters who um, love this land they have been raised on and they tend, you know, they tend and care for, and they have been exiled to Babylon away from this land and they are being taunted and are being told, you know, seeing sing the songs of your native land and and they ask how how are we supposed to sing um the songs of our god the songs of our land in a land that is not our own um and and this existential question is i mean you can even in many ways take it back to adam and eve um eden is their place and and they are exiled from it yep. and and they have memory of it and they are in in their own way trying to fix um themselves and and fix their memory to get back to that place that that they loved and and longed for so you 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 are writing in a long tradition of um of great great storytellers and great great fiction writers so thank you thank you um, so Manuel, where can we find your work and, and, and what are you working on right now? Yeah. So I, I have one short story online. Um, if you go to my website, manualaragon.com, mm -hmm. I, I think it links to, um, last, well, 2019, I had a short story published called the violent noise. And so, I believe that's on the site under written works. Um, so you can read my work there. I am currently working on, so I'm still editing, uh, still drafting and editing this short story collection. And 
in addition to that, in pandemic, uh, you know, I think I was saying that I've been able to write. And so I have almost finished the first draft of a novel that is um, kind of tied to the same world. This this one's a little bit more... Um, I, I would describe it as zanier. Um, hmm. It is, it's called We Buy Houses for Cash. You know, you've probably seen those like mm, yeah. really, um, I, I call them visual vomit, right? Those like yellow and red and black signs that uh, developers post throughout gentrifying neighborhoods looking to run some sort of hustle or scam. Um, and I, I think the idea is behind it is like, well, what if, you know, you, you hear people theorizing about like, you know, the signs go up and people are like, oh, well, it's a developer. Oh, it's this kind of person running this scam. Oh, it's this kind mm-hmm. of person running this scam. And it's one of those like, well, what if all these scams that you think are tied into that were true and all connected? And so interesting. And so it becomes this like, um, sort of near future speculative fiction uh, thriller about gentrification and displacement. Mm. Wow. Well, we will definitely link um, the short story, Violent Noise, that you referred to earlier in the show notes for this episode um, so that our listeners and viewers can explore your work in a deeper way. Thank you so much for joining us. It is our honor. You were, you were a treasure, not only to Denver, but to our world. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I've always found it curious that the first category of people, tyrants and autocrats target is artists. The more artists I meet like manual, the more clear it becomes. Beauty never gives itself away completely. It is usually a hint or rumor of something deeper, richer, and more beautiful resting just beneath the surface of our individual and collective lives. Tyranny and autocracy, on the other hand, propagate themselves by saying, this is all there is. This suffering, this chaos, this suppression, this separation, this is all there is. If you imagine anything beyond this, the autocrats and tyrants say, you might free yourself and we simply can't have that. Art is a non-negotiable in a democratic society. Let me say that again. Art is a non-negotiable in a democratic society. It takes us by the hand and says, look, look, you are meant for more. We are meant for more because we are.
Mile High Theology is a production of St. John's Cathedral and Episcopal Church in Denver, Colorado. To financially support the work of Mile High Theology, visit sjcathedral.org forward slash give. I offer special thanks to our guest, Manuel Aragon, our communications director and producer, Evans Owsley, our Christian formation assistant, Christina Rutland, our cathedral administrator, Georgie Brooks Myrtle, our theme music composer, Noah Glenn, and you, our loyal listeners. This podcast was recorded on the land of Ute, Cheyenne, and Arapaho peoples. We give God great thanks for the 48 contemporary tribes that are historically tied to the lands that make up the contemporary state of Colorado. Join us on Monday, February 8th, when Callie Fajardo Anstein talks to us about her book, Sabrina and Karina, the second installation of Malhai Theology's Spring Art Series. Please rate and review Malhai Theology on Apple Podcasts to enhance our digital visibility. Thank you. God bless you. See you next month.